We have a pretty relaxed vibe and we really try to create that with the aesthetics of how everything looks, that it's not too polished, it's not super dirty, but it's sort of a cross between the two. And also an artistic environment, so we always have murals and you know, try to do colorful things. That's founder and CEO and president of the Capitol Fringe Festival, Julianne Brianza. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Every July, Washington, D.C. comes alive with performances. More than 100 productions in 20 venues fill the streets with theater, music, live performances of all stripes, visual art, and various combinations of the above. It's the Capitol Fringe Festival, geared to give artists the chance and freedom to create and develop their vision, and to give audiences the opportunity to be adventurous and support independent performers. Launched in 2006, Capitol Fringe is now the second largest unjuried fringe festival in the United States. Since its inception, it's premiered over 600 new works of contemporary performance, generated $1.7 million in revenue for participating artists, entertained over 171,000 people in locations from traditional theaters to vacant storefronts, and created close to 500 paid positions for D.C. residents. Three years ago, Capital Fringe took the bold step of buying a building and creating the Logan Fringe Art Space, a year-round multi-use arts facility and community gathering place. While it does take a village to put on a festival, the driving force of Capital Fringe is its founder and president, Julianne Brianza, who moved to Washington, D.C. in 2003 and frankly found the city a little stodgy. Honestly, I, I moved here and I took a job to not work in theater anymore. <laughs> I was not successful at that. I found it honestly really debilitating here. At that time in DC, there was just a lot of suits, a lot of gray, unearthing things as far as what was local was challenging. This is like before Facebook and everything that we sort of take for granted now. And I had lived in Philadelphia for three years and worked the Fringe Festival there. And it was honestly how I met people that are still friends to this day and how I really discovered what the voice of theater was in that city. And so myself and Damien Sinclair, who worked at the time at Woolly Mammoth, who I'd also known in Philadelphia, we decided this would be a good thing. Julianne, explain what a Fringe Festival is. We hear about it all the time, but what is it? Fringe Festival originated in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1947 when the locals were not allowed to participate in the big international festival that was happening. And so they decided to do shows wherever they could, whether it be alleyways, churches, bars. And a journalist named Robert Kemp wrote in the newspaper that the big international festival was getting fringed. And that group of artists took that word and created the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, which is actually celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. That's and exciting. it is the, you know, the largest arts festival in the world. And that mentality of local, raw, 
fast and ready performances has really spread all over the globe. You know, just this week we celebrated the actual day when the 70th anniversary was and French festivals from all over the world did this live Google Hangout all day long. There's now about almost 500 individual festivals all around the world. What do you think the appeal of fringe festivals is? Well, I think by city and country, it really does vary. But I think something that is an intrinsic value that is across the globe is that they're accessible. Whether it be a participation fee that the artist is paying, whether it be the entrance fee that the audience is paying. But I think also it's the way that it's accessible, that it's not how a lot of people think of theater as an elitist activity and that it's super intellectualized, that it actually is storytelling and it actually is stories that are oftentimes new plays, new ideas, working through what's happening in, in the current times. And so I think that that's the connection. And most most French festivals have smaller houses. I mean, it does range. I mean, Edinburgh Festival is like huge now and they have like you know, 3,000 shows that happen during the month. But (laughs) it's intimacy as well. And being in an environment where you will find like-minded people that you can meet for the first time or reconnect with. And so there's that networking that happens. So I really think it's accessibility. Well, how did you go about creating Capital Fringe? How did you start? Honestly, we just started meeting with a lot of people and talking about it. And and we were sort of far along in the process. Like, I don't know if we, I don't remember if we'd actually submitted our 501c3, but we were like close to submitting that paperwork. And so before we did our first festival, we got a $30,000 grant from the Meyer Foundation and we got a $30,000 grant from the Caverts Foundation. And without that support, I mean, it wouldn't have happened, basically. So a lot of it was really good timing because it was at a time where like the Chinatown redevelopment had just finished and we were we were downtown so the downtown dc bid was also very supportive and the theater community at that time had a desire to have a place to congregate and meet one another and try things that you wouldn't be able to do in any other capacity with another organization so how many shows that first year and how many venues the first year we had 96 productions whoa I know, right? I really used Philadelphia as sort of our, how they, when they started. In their first year, they had 50. So I thought, you know, when we were doing the budget, I was like, well, we'll estimate that we'll have 50 because that'll be good. And we ended up having 96. And it was crazy. I'll be honest. I think that year, we either had 11 or 12 venues, something like that. I, I still, I distinctly remember the first year, we, we, got, we got to rent a lot of lighting and sound equipment and all that stuff. And I remember we were driving down New York Avenue and we actually pulled up on the sidewalk because we just really didn't know what we were doing. (laughs) We just like pulled up on the sidewalk and just kind of caught our breath for a minute. And we're like, "Okay, this is the plan. (laughs) But the festival over the years has sort of ebbed and flow. I think at our largest, we had about 140 productions in the festival. This year, you know, we recently bought a building in the Northeast to explore having a year round operation. And... The festival is really challenging in the neighborhood that we bought our building in. 
it's really interesting the things that I thought about before and now I'm realizing after we've been in the neighborhood now for three years, it's really different doing the festival in a neighborhood that doesn't have an organizing body, like a bid. Like a bid? Yeah, like a business improvement district. Oh, okay. To really find people who will actually care about what you're doing and who you're bringing to the neighborhood and and, and what a partnership is, is is very different. So you're kind of starting from scratch. Yes and no. It's So this year what I did is every year we've been in the new neighborhood. We've been in Trinidad and H Street Northeast and then had an additional neighborhood. The first year we were in Brookland, which is around Catholic University. The second year we went back downtown. But the whole way to do a successful festival is to have everything within a walking radius. That's like Festival 101. So this year I actually made the festival smaller so that all of our venues are within a five to 10 minute 10 minute walk from the festival hub. Um, So this year we have about 90 productions in the festival. They're doing 454 individual performances. Which is still considerable. It feels different to me, but I don't know that anyone else really notices that it's smaller, (laughs) in in, in all honesty. (laughs) How do you choose what shows? This year, because of the wanting to make it smaller, I did tweak the entrance a little bit, but primarily it's first come, first served, up to what we can accommodate in our venues. And as long as you're not doing a show that is personally shaming to someone and harmful, like if if I were to do a show saying that, and my whole show was based around wanting to kill you, that isn't allowed. You know, just because people want to do a lot of different things. (laughs) And I sort of learned that from the Minnesota Fringe Festival, just different things that they had to deal with there. But it's first come, first served. And this year what we did up until the Monday after the Thanksgiving holiday, you got entered into the Lottery of Chance. Is that really what it's called? That's what I called oh, it. Yeah, it was a lottery a of chance. Name. And the chance was you may or may not get in. Uh-huh. And then what we did with the people that entered after that time, we really just took what we could accommodate. Pretty much first come, first serve, but it was really what what would fit into the venues after we had done the first come, first serve. And that was exactly my question, because if I have a production with 25 people... Yeah, we may have more room in the solo performance venue. Right, exactly. That's a lot to think about. It's all a lot to think about. Yeah, I'm sure it's all (laughs) a lot to think. It's, It's pretty daunting. Do you work at all with the artists who are presenting... Oh, my God, so much. Yes, absolutely. So we do a lot of training. So it really starts right off. We have about a 40-page How to Fringe handbook that walks through how the box office works. We have a whole marketing section, how to prepare your printed materials, your blurbs, your images, tips on how to write copy, you know, how to be concise, what words to not use production, how to minimize things, how to th- how to really think through so many details that no one really thinks about, that it is hot in the summer here. And even though you are in an air-conditioned venue, you really need to be thinking about how people are, your cast is getting to and from and safety and all that stuff. So we do in-person trainings. It's all production-related. And then we do uh, marketing. And then with marketing, we also talk about the box office. And it just continues on through the festival because we deal with a lot of folks that may have never done a show before maybe they have done a show but they haven't done a show here so they need to you know have different tips about the type of audiences that are here in dc 
and just different ways of like how to communicate. So just like proper professional communication. We do a lot of that sort of training. And I would imagine logistically, if people have any kind of a set, it's like how you can get it up quickly and how you can take it down quickly because you're yeah. following a show and another show. Well, one thing we changed, you know, for, I guess, 11 years we had, it was a, a real strict 15 minutes in and 15 minutes out. But what I've noticed is that that doesn't really necessarily work anymore. And who we're not servicing is the technical theater community. You know, it's a job where you do lots of lots of different jobs to mm-hmm. actually make a living. So this year we actually changed the way in which we programmed things and people have 20 to 30 minutes to load in and load out. I've noticed, you know, we're only, I guess today we're officially one weekend, <laughs> but I, I, I've gotten less crazy calls. <laughs> but it is challenging because at, at each of our spaces on one stage, we have 12 groups. And so we set up a Slack channel in which the artists could communicate with one another to see if they wanted to share anything. And then it's up to our production manager and then the venue manager to really coordinate, not just that everything gets stored, but that everything is fair. Because that is something that is really critical in the festival is that someone is not put over someone else. Like if we can do something for one person, we have to do it for everybody because of the way that the ticket revenue is. We can't give an unfair advantage to someone else because it is an earning opportunity for artists because they do make a percentage of the ticket revenue, which is a real balance. That must be a real (laughs) balance. It means we say no a lot. (laughs) And I would think for so many artists, it's also... It's such a heightened moment for so many of them. There is. I've had people yell at me a lot, like a lot, and yell at my staff a lot in moments of crisis that really are not a crisis. It's really just how people deal with stress. And so a lot of what I train my staff to do is to realize that we don't need to get upset. We don't need to apologize unless we have made an error. But to really take a breath and realize when someone is agitated to to really take into consideration where they're coming from because a lot of the people that we have participating in our programs are doing multiple jobs are getting a lot of email are you know and they may miss something and we have to be aware of of that otherwise it's just fighting all the time (laughs) so you have about 90 shows correct what's the length of time on average for the show what's what's the average running time Yeah, so we, you know, it's so funny. The other week there was an article in the Washington Post about intermissions and everyone was talking about intermissions and how annoying they are at theater. So we don't don't allow intermissions, never have. Most of our work is 60 to 90 minutes long. A lot of fringe festivals say how long your show has to be because it is a rapid fashion and things have to happen and you got venue schedules. It's, It's very similar to a train schedule. You can't get off schedule or then you're delayed for the rest of the day. I've never limited the time. But because of the no intermission, we used to have shows that were like 120 minutes, which is just too long (laughs) for the environment that we're in. So really, there's only a handful of 90-minute shows. Everything is like 60 to 75 minutes. How many of the artists who perform at Capital Fringe are local? Every year of the Capital Fringe Festival, we've had 50% or higher of our artists living in the District of Columbia. Last year, for the first time, you know, that was our 11th year, it was like 39% lived in the district. I feel like I should know the numbers this year, but I, have, I don't think I've actually looked at them because I don't want to know. 
I want to be ignorant right now. I will look at them once we sort of wrap up the festival to do the whole report. But to me, that's significant. What do you think accounts for that change? A lot of the issues is space in the district. I mean, it's not just the need for studio space or performance space or rehearsal space or practice space for a band. It's living. And affordable housing, much as the various administrations talk about dealing with it, there's a need that's really not being filled. And and what will happen, and it is happening now, is people are just going to move away. And that, that actually affects what I do a great deal because part of our mission at Capital Fringe is to service the local community. But if the local community doesn't exist, what do we do? Do we just become a presenter? To be an artist living in the District of Columbia, that that's how you make your money, if you're that person, I'd love to talk to you. (laughs) It's a rare thing. Is there a place in this year's Fringe where audiences and artists can mingle and talk and hang? I mean, that's been that's been really critical to how I've grown the festival to have that, um, because honestly, we didn't have that the first two years. And then you got the tent. And then we got the tent. 2008. Explain what the tent is. So we bought a tent in 2008. It was called the Baldacino Tent. It's about 3,000 square feet. Half of it was a bar. Half of it was an 80-seat theater venue. And then because the parking lot was so large, we, we also had a patio. And then as time progressed, we also got cafe seating on the sidewalk. I never actually got the permit for that because I thought it was ridiculous because the sidewalk I mean, it was so wide. Like, so I, I never actually got the permit because I was like, I'm already doing the tent permit and that's like $5,000. Like, please come tell me to get off the sidewalk, which no one ever did. And that was a really critical place for artists to be able to come pitch their shows, but also just t- people just can talk to each other. And we have a pretty relaxed vibe. And we really try to create that with the aesthetics of how everything looks, that it's not too polished. It's not super dirty. But it's sort of a cross between the two and also an artistic environment. So we always have murals and, you know, try to do colorful things. And it really, even in our new location, we do have a courtyard outdoor bar. And then we have an indoor bar as well, which also serves as a gallery. And so we do still have that place where people can come, just kind of check in, see who's there, meet someone new. I mean, it's been really fun over the years. You know, people do meet for the first time at the Fringe Festival and... They continue to be friends, and it's it's sort of sort of fun. We've had a couple marriages. French um, marriages. Yeah. And then we also do run a bar, and we try to keep things priced pretty low. So it is a way that we can create an atmosphere where people can, of very, varying different incomes, really hang out. And, and are you seeing that? Absolutely. It, you know, it's something that I think when we first got the tent, like, I would have this, like, just thing I'd say, like, there's people of all different backgrounds hanging out. I think that was my hope. But then it happens. There are people that are just not people that would ever be together, that end up in the same place, and they end up hanging out. And I I think that's pretty cool for Washington, D.C. Your background, you're not from here. You're from... I'm not. Where are you from? I grew up in Montana. In the countryside? I grew up in Dillon, Montana. It's about an hour south of Butte, which is typically a place people have heard of. It's in the southwest corner. It's about two hours north of the Gardner Gate to Yellowstone. When I was growing up, it was a town of like 3,000 people. Now there's like six or 7,000 people that live there. But it is the county seat, and it is the largest county in Montana. East Coast perspective, it's the middle of nowhere. 
Uh, when I went to the orthodontist, it was a two-hour drive there and a two-hour drive back. And your family, were people interested in theater? How did you no, become interested in theater? I don't theater? even really know anymore. No, my, my father is a visual artist. He does glass bowing, jewelry making, he does pottery. I'm the youngest of five. My brother runs an advertising agency, and then my sister is a graphic designer. I don't really know. My sister was in a play. I was three years old. She was in a play, and I somehow got involved, and I was Helen Keller's, like, something, like, niece that would, like, sit there because I was, like, a baby. I always liked doing theater, and we had the Montana Vaudeville Players, which was basically like a summer stock, so a lot of college college students would go and do it, and when I was in high school, I was like, well, that's what I'm going to do. So I went and auditioned, and I actually got a part, and it was a really awesome experience. I mean, it was basically a small theater, so... I was in the shows, then we had the, you know, the first, it would open with the melodrama, and then we'd do intermission, and we had to go sell concessions, and then we'd go and do, like, the vaudeville portion where we would sing and dance, and it was a really, really fun experience with the organ and all that sort of stuff. It was really fun. It sounds like it's good training for Fringe, doing everything. I know, right? Well, I did grow up in a household that you had to, like, we didn't get an allowance. I had to, like, negotiate for why I needed money to do X, and... We did, I think growing up in that sort of rural environment, you you do things. Like we would sweep the gutters outside on the street, that kind of stuff. It was just, it's just a different environment. It's what you did. Yeah, it's what you did. <laughs> what brought you to Philadelphia? I went to college in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and I got out of college with a theater degree and had no idea what to do. So I went and lived in my sister's basement in Chicago and attempted various jobs. And a friend of mine was running a newspaper in Carroll, Iowa. He was the editor, and I ended up going there for nine months and was their graphic designer and also ended up running a political campaign for a man running for the Iowa legislature, as one does. Uh, and then I, you know, I woke up and I was like, what, what, what am I doing? So I applied for apprenticeships and internships all over the country. And I got hired at the Arden Theater Company in Philadelphia to be an Arden apprentice, which is basically a program that's nine months long and you learn how to run a nonprofit theater. And it's like 80 hour weeks and super intense. But I really loved it. I learned so much there. And they're a really, really well run organization with an awesome, staff uh, morale and consistency of leadership it was it really changed my life it was a really great opportunity and it was also the theater community in Philadelphia is one that is really strong a lot of the regional theaters there have the mentality that hiring local first is important and that sort of stuff I really loved Philly it was good but then you know I wanted to go somewhere else and not work in theater at some point why did you want to leave the theater it's sort of tiring working at a regional, because I was working in regional theater. It's just the business model I found really laborious. Just with There's the subscri- a lot of fundraising. Just the subscriptions and like all this stuff. I just was like, is this it? This is what I'm doing? I've never really had the temperament to be an actor. I did get interested in puppetry for a while. And one year, my tax return, it reads that I was a puppeteer, because that was how I made the majority of my like non-existent income. So I've always really been interested in places where artists get together, like whether it's artists in residency program, 
that sort of thing where people have to come and create and you sort of help them and, and talk through strategies and stuff. So I, I came to D.C. to work at Flashpoint, which is run by the Cultural D.C. It was called the Cultural Development Corporation at that time. So I ran their Flashpoint program when I first moved here. My goal was to have a job for two years, but I only made it a year and nine months and I left and started Fringe. And started Fringe. I was close to that goal, but I missed it. <laughs> now, you also created the Logan Fringe Art Space. And, but, and you own that building. We do. What was the thinking behind that? One thing that's challenging in D.C. for the theater community is space. You know, with various other venues closing, being cost prohibitive, and regional theaters not really making their space available, we felt that Capital Fringe was in a position to service the community in that manner. And we were losing our location. We didn't own the building, and it's... You know, it was 20,000 square feet. Like, we're not going to have that forever. I'm actually still amazed that we were in there for eight years. That's that's like Doug Jamal. Thank you very much. (laughs) So the plan is that next year we will go into a renovation of some sort to just better utilize the, the square footage that we have. And then also we're going through a big strategic planning process. Because outside of the festival, we're actually generating more new audiences at Logan Fringe Art Space that are not theater. They're either music Music. or creative events or visual arts. And so we have a lot of opportunity to grow, but we do need to gain some perspective. And did buying that building enable you to branch out that way? Or were you heading in that direction? We were heading in that direction already. We really started doing year-round activity in about 2010. And I'm more of a all arts person. I have a visual art degree as, as well as a theater degree. And I have not always just been totally theater. So I, I like doing all of the things. And I like the perspective that is gained from speaking and dealing with and servicing each community. And then also I'm working on the festival so that one, it can continue to grow. We can continue to grow artists, like not continue to get smaller, but continue to add artists and also add audiences. And so I'm, I'm in the process of figuring that out as well. We'll just have to wait and see where all the pieces fall. And I think there we'll leave it. Julianne, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's founder and CEO and president of the Capital Fringe Festival, Julianne Brianza. Capital Fringe continues through July 30th. For more information, go to capitalfringe.org. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.